Can you dream of a world immune to cancer? Hello everyone, my name is Nick and I'm the host of the annual live stream for The Cure where content creators and podcasters from around the world join me to raise money for the Cancer Research Institute and Immunotherapy Research, which is training the body's immune system to fight against all forms of cancer. Over the past seven years, thanks to the power of indie podcasters and the indie podcasting community and listeners just like you listening to this right now, we have raised over $90,000. And as I record this now, the eighth annual live stream for The Cure is barreling down upon us really, really quickly in just about two weeks. So join us, please, from May 29th through June 1st for 48 hours of amazing content from people all over the world and help us fight for a world immune to cancer. And I'll return you to your regularly scheduled programming. Thank you so, so much. And together, we can make a difference. I'm Em and welcome to Verbal Diorama episode 173, Blade 2. This is the podcast that's all about the history and legacy of movies you know and movies you don't. As always, a huge hi, welcome and welcome back to Verbal Diorama, regular returning listeners or irregular returning listeners and welcome to all of you brand new listeners who are listening to this podcast episode because presumably you're a huge fan of Blade 2. And who isn't a huge fan of Blade 2? Well, we're going to come to that. But before I do, thank you for being here. Thank you for choosing this podcast. And no matter how you got here, no matter how you found this podcast, I'm so happy to have you here because this episode is all about the history and legacy of Blade 2. And what a legacy Blade 2 leaves us. It's one of the most fascinating stories. And obviously, I'm going to come to all of this because it involves the master, Guillermo del Toro. Regular listeners to this podcast will know how much I love del Toro. I've covered several of his movies already. And I'm just a huge fan of everything that he does. And when I say everything that del Toro does, I mean everything. I've seen all of his movies. Some of them I've seen countless times. And this one in particular... It's probably one of my favourites because I do love a comic book movie. I do love action and I love martial arts and I love vampire movies as well. But the fact that this is a Del Toro movie just blows my mind. And seriously, 
I have so much love for this movie. I can't wait to talk about it. Before I do, I just want to say a huge thank you to everyone who listened to the previous episodes. So most recently, there have been episodes on Grease 2 and Spider-Man 2. And because I'm the book of theme month here, and because they always seem to do really well, I'm actually doing something called Sequel Timber. Now, I did Sequel Timber last year, and I did sequels to movies that I've already covered on the podcast. And Grease 2 was the unofficial start because that was an episode that I did for my birthday. And I just really love Grease 2. I love, 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 love Grease 2. You cannot stop me from loving that movie. I think it's amazing. It's the superior Grease. But to be honest, I've never covered Grease. And it came out in August, that episode. So it doesn't really count for sequel Temba. But Spider-Man 2 does count. And it is the official start of sequel Temba. And wow, that is a movie that holds up in so many ways. It's still the best Sam Raimi Spider-Man movie. It's still the best live action Spider-Man movie that exists in the world. Don't come for me. It's true. Just the same as Grease 2 is the superior Grease. Spider-Man 2 is the superior live action Spider-Man movie. And Blade 2 might not hold up quite as well with its CG. But its practical effects are mind-blowingly good. The designs of the Reapers are out of this world. And this is a movie that would mark Guillermo del Toro's first big Hollywood blockbuster. There's so much to celebrate here with Blade 2. So, let's have a listen to the trailer. There's a world beyond the one we know. Where the powers of darkness fear nothing but one man. Stop! Blade. We represent the ruling body of the Vampire Nation. They're offering you a truce. They want to meet with you. You sure about this? They'll take us in deeper than we've ever been. Now, those he has sworn to kill need his help to fight a new breed of terror. They're no longer top of the food chain. Our forces are ready to fight, but we need a leader. Let me get this right. You want me to hunt them for you? Ooh, so exciting. Five, four, three, two. One. Keep your friends close. Keep your enemies closer. mutation has occurred within the vampire community, the Reaper. A vampire so consumed with an insatiable bloodless that they prey on vampires as well as humans, transforming victims who are unlucky enough to survive into Reapers themselves. Now their quickly expanding population threatens the existence of vampires, and soon there won't be enough humans in the world to satisfy their bloodlust. Blade, the resurrected Whistler, and an armory expert named Scud 
are curiously summoned by the Vampiric Shadow Council. The council reluctantly admits that they are in a dire situation and they require Blade's assistance. Blade then tenuously enters into alliance with the Blood Pack, an elite team of vampires trained in all modes of combat to defeat the Reaper threat. Blade's team and the Blood Pack are the only line of defence which can prevent the Reaper population from wiping out the vampire and human populations. Let's talk about the cast. We have, of course, Wesley Snipes, the one and only Wesley Snipes, returning as Eric Brooks, a.k.a. Blade, Chris Christopherson as Abraham Whistler, Ron Perlman as Reinhardt, Leonor Varela as Nisa, Norman Reedus as Scud, Thomas Kretschmann as Eli Damaskinos, Luke Goss as Jared Nomak, Matt Schultz as Tupa, Danny John Jules as Assad, and Donnie Yen as Snowman. Blade 2 was written by David S. Goya, directed by Guillermo del Toro, and based on Blade by Mark Wolfman and Gene Colan. Now, I have done a previous episode on Blade. It is episode 154 of this podcast. And I would recommend that you go back and you listen to that because I do go through Blade's comic book history, how important the character actually was in comics. But for those who've already listened a while ago, or maybe you don't have time to listen, Here's a quick previously on Verbal Diorama recap. Obviously, if you can go back and listen, please do so, because this is just going to be a very condensed history of Blade. So in January 1971, the Comics Code Authority updated its code criteria. This had been in place since 1954, and it relaxed its rules on the depiction of horror in comics. Previously, the code had stated that all scenes of horror, excessive bloodshed, gory or gruesome crimes, depravity, lust, sadism and masochism shall not be permitted and that no comic magazine shall use the words horror or terror in its title. For the first time, supernatural creatures like vampires, werewolves and ghouls were allowed in comics as long as they had a background in classical literature such as Dracula and Frankenstein. Marvel published its first step into vampire lore, taking advantage of this new code in October 1971, where the character Michael Morbius debuted in The Amazing Spider-Man number 101. He was afflicted with pseudo-vampirism through trying to find a cure for his rare blood disease. He could also infect others with his pseudo-vampirism by biting them. His first starring comic was Morbius the Living Vampire in 1992, and then Dracula himself in the first issue of The Tomb of Dracula, which was published in April 1972. In 1973, writer Marv Wolfman and artist Gene Colan decided to create a new supporting character for The Tomb of Dracula number 10. And he was based on two white guys' interpretation of black exploitation with afro hair, teak bladed knives, a green leather jacket, and massive yellow shades with the typical cliched African American dialogue. And his name was Blade. He appeared in issues 10 to 21 and again in issue 28. The character was temporarily retired for a year before bringing him back as less of a black caricature in September 1974. In December 1974, he got his first solo story in Vampire Tales number 8 and in 1994 got his first solo colour comic book series, Blade the Vampire Hunter. He started out as a normal human immune to vampire bites and then was bitten by Morbius the living vampire and that gave Blade his Daywalker abilities. Moving forward in time, there were several attempts to get a movie of Blade up and running. And it was in June 1992 that Wesley Snipes announced he was going to be going ahead with making a movie version 
of his favourite comic book character. And now you might be saying, well, clearly it was Blade. But no, it wasn't because it was Black Panther. And he was approached by Marvel and entered into talks with Columbia to portray Black Panther. And he saw this as a unique opportunity to tell a black story. But nothing materialised. And by January 1996, Snipes blamed a poor understanding of the character by draft scriptwriters, citing that many seemed to think it was about the Black Panther Party and not about the comic book hero Black Panther. Of course, Marvel would go to declare bankruptcy in 1996, and while Fox would ultimately gain the film rights to X-Men, Black Panther's big screen debut would stall, mostly due to the elaborate special effects required. Wesley Snipes would then, however, receive a script for an adaptation of Blade. And the rest, as they say, is history. Now, obviously, the first Blade movie did incredibly well, and the unsung hero of Blade really is David S. Goya. And he went in and he pitched his Blade trilogy. He called it the Star Wars of black vampire movies. He was adamant that Blade be a comic book movie grounded in reality, and he wanted to depict vampirism as a disease that spreads, with the additional racial animosity and prejudice between the pure-blood vampires and the turned vampires, with a half-breed being the guy who kills both of those types of vampires indiscriminately. Blade would have a foot in each world, but be a part of none of them. New Line Cinema, who obviously were interested in this prospect, had the gall to ask if Blade could be white. And David Escoya rebuffed this ridiculous situation and doubled down on his script, being nothing like any superhero movie that came before it. This was not going to be Superman or Batman. And Goya would go on to write the Dark Knight trilogy, Man of Steel, and Batman v Superman Dawn of Justice. So these would be characters that he would know a lot about. Blade was going to be a martial arts R-rated horror blood splatterfest, but with none of the gothic romanticised versions of Dracula, such as in Bram Stoker's Dracula or Interview with the Vampire. It would include huge 90s-style raids, martial arts sequences and copious amounts of blood. And when Blade became a surprise hit in 1998, the floodgates opened not only to other comic book adaptations like X-Men in 2000 and Spider-Man in 2002, both episodes of this podcast, and following Blade's success, a sequel to Blade was inevitable. Sequel plans started being made in 1999, and producer Peter Frankfurt's first job was to convince David S. Goya to return to pen the script for the second movie after his successful first Blade script. Goya didn't take much persuading because he loved the character and everything he stood for and was such a steadfast guide and light for the first movie's vision. He started writing the script, initially intending for Morbius to feature, but Sony at the time had other plans for Morbius to have his own franchise. Plans which obviously would not come to fruition until 2021. And even then, I think it's highly unlikely that Morbius will have his own franchise. But I digress. Blade director Stephen Norrington, also pivotal to Blade's success, was approached to direct the sequel. He would go on to decline, choosing instead to work on a smaller scale film called The Last Minute, and subsequently his slightly critically panned 2003 film The League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, which was also a comic book adaptation, but that movie didn't go so well for him. Blade 2 needed someone who understood the material, had a passion for detail and aesthetics, as well as someone who was able to balance horror, humour and the macabre. Enter stage right, Guillermo del Toro. So in 1997, Guillermo del Toro's Mimic had come out. 
Now, that movie didn't do so well, but it demonstrated his ability to complete a stylish, special effects-driven feature while adhering to studio requirements and working within a moderate budget. This was despite arguments with Bob Weinstein over the tone of Mimic, leading to Weinstein trying to fire Del Toro from the project and cutting the finished film to absolute shreds. That is a topic for a future episode on Mimic, for sure. Del Toro never approved of the theatrical cut of Mimic, and his director's cut would come out in 2010. But through Mimic, he would work with darkness. He'd work in sewers and with monsters. So really, the idea of Blade 2 was right up his alley, or should that be down his sewer? I don't know. Don't even know if that's a thing. I'm making it a thing. And it was his work on Mimic which introduced him to producer Peter Frankfurt. Frankfurt first met Del Toro when his design company, Imaginary Forces, did the title sequences for Mimic. David S. Goya and Guillermo Del Toro were longtime friends, and both Goya and Frankfurt really wanted Del Toro to direct this movie. And Del Toro agreed, but he basically said, I want to make this Blade movie even scarier than the first. The script was developed independently, but once Del Toro was on board, he got involved in the creation adding and removing parts he thought worked or didn't work. Del Toro understood what worked in the first movie and he didn't want to lose anything that did because he respected Stephen Norrington's vision, but he also wanted to add his own flair. And it was the idea of the blood pack that enticed him. He wanted to make the dirty dozen of vampire movies. And Guillermo Del Toro would take the law of Blade seriously, not just as a comic book fan, but as a franchise fan. He asked New Line for every second of existing footage from that first Blade movie, including stuff that didn't make it into the final cut of Norrington's film. All of the takes that existed. He analysed all of them, decided what he wanted to maintain for continuity and what he felt that they could amend to make a logical continuation of the Blade story, but ramp up the martial arts, evolve the world of Blade. That didn't mean Del Toro liked the original comic book character, who, as I said, was based on black exploitation, written by two white guys, and who originally spoke jive, just like those two guys in Airplane. He felt there was no nuance to the character of Blade in the comics, and it was Norrington's movie that made Del Toro fall in love with the character, and mostly it was Wesley Snipes' portrayal. And as I mentioned last episode that I did on Blade, Wesley Snipes is so integral to the character of Blade, to the movies of Blade, Without him, Blade as an entity would not exist as we know him. Del Toro had gone from Kronos to Mimic to the Devil's Backbone and now to Blade 2. And he saw Blade 2 as just pure and adulterated fun. He studied anime fight scenes for how to make violent scenes non-offensive and fun to watch. But he also took the project seriously as a way to grow as a director to get more narrative experience. Del Toro always assured that he wasn't there to make Guillermo del Toro's Blade 2, but just Blade 2. Del Toro wanted vampires to once again be terrifying because he was sick of the romantic notion of vampires being tormented Victorian heroes, and he tapped into an idea that he'd been mulling over for some time. This idea would become the Reapers and would also serve as inspiration for his own project, The Strain, but I'm going to come back to that a bit later. Originally titled Blade 2 Bloodhunt or Blade 2 Bloodlust, kind of a bit of both, returning cast members Wesley Snipes and Chris Christopherson would be joined by newcomers to the franchise, Rod Perlman, the legend himself, Norman Reedus and Luke Goss, 
Luke Goss, up to that point, was mostly known as a British singer. And he was a huge fan of the first Blade film. He'd starred in a movie with Wesley Snipes called Zigzag. And writer David Guerre suggested to Del Toro to meet with Goss for the part of Jared Novak. Wesley Snipes, as producer, yet again through his Amon Ra Films company, had casting approval for Blade 2. And he agreed to cast Goss eight weeks after he met with Del Toro. Goss would spend four hours a day in makeup. He said in an interview with Lorraine Kelly that he did 85% of his own stunts. The fight choreographer and martial arts coordinator on Blade 2 was the one and only Donnie Yen, who also has a small role as Snowman. Wesley Snipes would also work on the choreography of Blade 2 because obviously Wesley Snipes, he is a martial artist. He did pretty much all of his work on Blade. And again, he does pretty much all of the work here in Blade 2 as well. And it really shows the only time it's not him is when it's a CG version. And obviously I am going to come to the slightly wonky CG. But after all, it is 20 years old. We have to forgive 20-year-old CG. The Reaper's design is one of my favourite things about this movie because the Reapers are obviously inspired by several things. They're inspired by the 1922 classic vampire movie Nosferatu as well as the 1970 film Beneath the Planet of the Apes. The creature's expanding jaws and protruding mandibles first came to Del Toro as he was compiling ideas for a pitch to Warner Brothers for the film I Am Legend. This was obviously way before Will Smith was going to do the movie. It was actually when Arnold Schwarzenegger was being considered to star in I Am Legend, as well as him figuring out vampirism in Kronos. The Reapers would be able to feed off their victims in a far more horrific way, thanks to their hideous jaw apparatus, which would combine Lovecraftian design with alien imagery to produce something terrifying, yet unforgettable. Comic book artists Mike Mignola and Timothy Bradstreet worked on the project as conceptual artists and the Mignola connection would also come to pass as Del Toro's next project after this was Hellboy, obviously written by Mike Mignola. And while this movie has a little connection to this one, including Scud wearing a t-shirt featuring the logo of the Bureau of Paranormal Research and Defense, Hellboy 2 The Golden Army has several additional parallels, including an estranged father-son plot, Ron Perlman, of course, and Luke Goss, because let's not forget, Luke Goss is also in Blade 2 The Golden Army, and he's also really, really good in that movie too. Blade 2 is obviously, I think, most well-known for the Reapers, and it was Tippett's studio, famous dinosaur supervisor Phil Tippett, his studio, and it was the first time that Tippett's studio and director Guillermo del Toro had worked together on these vicious uber-vampires with the capacity to disassemble and stretch their jaws out like a huge serpent. Tippett Studios augmented the live-action performers with digital prosthetics, and it was using cutting-edge face replacement techniques to produce the effect that was both believable and disturbing. And honestly, they still look fantastic to this day. And this is despite not all of the effects holding up to a modern lens. They did attempt a photorealistic digital double, a blade, that could do things like slip, impossibly strong and agile, jump around and all sorts of cool things. But this was early 2000 CG, so it's always going to age a little bit. The practical effects are really where this movie shines. Once you see a Reaper, you will never forget a Reaper. It's one of those vampire designs that just sticks in your brain. 
And I remember the first time I saw The Strain, which is a really good show, actually. I didn't finish The Strain, but I started The Strain. I watched the first couple of seasons and you can really tell this is Del Toro. You can tell the inspiration is there. The link between these two things, Blade 2 and The Strain. I am going to come back to The Strain a bit later on. Blade 2 was shot on location in Prague Studios and Barandov Studios in the Czech Republic. And the reason Prague was chosen was due to the number of sets that already existed. Building these sets in the US would have cost far too much money. 400 Czech extras were on set for the House of Pain scene, and Del Toro would describe them as the most hardworking, dedicated extras he had ever worked with. The House of Pain was, in Del Toro's mind, a place where vampires could relax, enjoy themselves without retribution. They can devour razor blades together and mutilate each other for fun. A sadomasochistic, quite literal, house of pain. The production designer in Blade 2 was Carol Spear. She'd actually worked on almost all of David Cronenberg's films. She's also a Mimic alumnus. She designed sets and props in contrast to light and dark and gave the film a Baroque style typical of Prague and other Eastern European countries. Speer would go on to work again with Del Toro on Pacific Rim. Damaskinos' lair is both ancient and modern. The blood pack invoked the Matrix, which Blade definitely invokes the Matrix just generally. Wendy Partridge, a veteran of TV science fiction, would design the costumes in this movie. And Steve Johnson and his makeup team at XFX were the special makeup effects artists who worked on the makeup for the Reapers, basically made them all zany, as well as the autopsy scene, which shows a reinforced chest, the heart encased in bone, and pivotally, when a Reaper's organs are hardwired with a drop of blood and the body that reacts without the brain intact. It's one of the most visceral and memorable scenes in the entire movie. That is thanks to Steve Johnson and XFX. I want to segue though, because when we're talking about vampires, we're talking about immortal beings. I guess it's time for me to move on to the obligatory Keanu reference, which is where I try and link the movie that I'm featuring with Keanu Reeves. Now, the episode that I did on Blade, I managed to link him with The Matrix, and I try not to use the same reference twice. So I thought about Keanu and vampire and immortal. And there's a website which suggests that not only is Keanu immortal, that he is actually a vampire. The website is KeanuIsImmortal.com and it states that Keanu first came to prominence as Charlemagne in the year 748, but also that he is actually French actor Paul Mounet, who lived between 1847 and 1922. I do feel like Blade would never hunt Keanu down because he's not going around drinking blood to maintain his youth. He's maintained his youth by doing nice things and being a cool guy. So I think. Blade would be cool with Keanu. I really do. I mentioned in the last episode that I did on Blade about rave music in Blade and about how pivotal the rave scene was to Blade in 1998. And the music for Blade 2 served as a very poignant follow-up to the music from Blade. Now, it is available on a soundtrack. It came out in March 2002 and it was published by Immortal Records, which how perfect is that to have your soundtrack for your vampire movie be published by Immortal Records? The soundtrack contains artists such as Bubba Sparks, Buster Rhymes, Cypress Hill, Eve, Fabulous, Ice Cube, Jada Kiss, Most Death, Mystical, Ra Digger, Redman, 
Silk the Shocker, The Roots, Trina and Volume 10. And also electronic musicians like BT, Danny Sabre, Dog Pistols, Gorillaz, Groove Armada, Fatboy Slim, Paul Oakenfold and Ronnie Size. They all handled production on this soundtrack. So this is a very early 2000s soundtrack. And I know it's a soundtrack that's beloved by many people as well. Basically, if you want a time capsule of early 2000s music, listen to the Blade 2 soundtrack. That's all I'm going to say. So let's go back in time. It's March 2002. Obviously, this was 20 years ago. And usually, March and April were the quiet months for cinema. You didn't get big releases in March and April because the big releases waited for the lucrative summer blockbuster period. But Blade 2 bucked that trend, coming out on the 22nd of March 2002 in the US. It opened at number one at the US box office, although not by much. Previous number one Ice Age only took $408,000 less, which I think is the tightest one to two margin I have ever seen on this podcast. Blade 2 would drop to number four in its second week as Panic Room and The Rookie came out. Ice Age would remain at number two, but let's not forget Ice Age was a huge movie at the time. And financially, Blade 2 made $82.3 million in the US, $72.2 million internationally for a grand total of $155 million worldwide. And this was on a $54 million budget, and this surpassed the box office for the first movie. But critically, this is where Blade 2 starts to get a bit ridiculous because despite this being a fantastic Blade movie and a great comic book movie, the critics, especially when you look at Rotten Tomatoes, would consider this on par with the original. So both sit at 57% of the review aggregate of Rotten Tomatoes, meaning 57% of critics gave this movie 3 out of 5 or 6 out of 10 or higher. It's actually slightly worse for Blade 2 if you think about it because that score is from 150 critical reviews and Blade's is from 107. And honestly, I just don't get it. Many of the newer retrospective reviews are far more kind to this movie, especially those recently reviewing it with a 20-year eye because, and I think this is pivotal, and I think this is really important, those critics who mauled the visual effects and lack of character development back in 2002 really did not see what Blade 2 would actually accomplish for cinema. And it's a lot more than 57% would suggest. I'm going to come back to this point in a minute. Roger Ebert actually would describe Blade 2 as, and I love this, it's perfect, a brilliant vomitorium of viscera, a comic book with dreams of becoming a textbook for mad surgeons. That is perfect. Thank you, Roger Ebert. <laughs> I don't always agree with what Roger Ebert says about movies, but he loved this movie. And I think that's the perfect description. A brilliant vomitorium of viscera. It is definitely that. While Blade 2 didn't win or be nominated for any awards, it did give us Blade Trinity. It introduced Ryan Reynolds and Jessica Biel to the Bladeverse. It was notorious for its fallouts on set. I have not rewatched Blade Trinity. When I did the episode last on Spider-Man 2, I mentioned I'd also watched Spider-Man 3. I did not watch Blade Trinity for this episode, and I don't remember Blade Trinity 
all that well, to be honest, but I do know there are some notorious stories about the set and about the experience of Blade Trinity. There was more to come from Blade. It was followed by Blade the series in 2006, starring Kirk Sticky Fingers Jones as Blade. And Wesley Snipes, who still loves this character and is still so important to the legacy of this character, has always expressed an interest in returning to the role. But in 2012, the rights to Blade, they reverted back to Marvel. And of course, in 2019, Marvel Studios announced Blade would be coming to the MCU and the incredible Mahershala Ali would be starring as Blade. And Snipes has always expressed his support of Mahershala Ali. And I'm still hopeful, fingers crossed, that we will get a little Wesley Snipes cameo in the new Blade movie. Make it happen, Kevin Feige, because that is genuinely what the fans want. Speaking of what the fans want, let's move on to social media thoughts. And we're going to start, of course, with the amazing patrons of this podcast. And of course, we're going to start with perennial commenter Andy. And Andy says, Well, this was certainly an improvement, wasn't it? After attempting to outcool other superhero movies at the time, two, at least in my opinion, middling results, Guillermo del Toro takes the reins for what will be considered the good one of the Blade series. Leaning on the strengths of Del Toro's twisted fairy tale, the movie excels in new ways, and the casting of Ron Perlman is, in a word, chef's kiss. Seriously, you can make any movie better just by including Ron Perlman in your cast. Ron Perlman is one of the unsung heroes of Hollywood, and I will not take any other opinion as gospel. I adore Ron Perlman. I think he's wonderful, and he is my hellboy. <laughs> I've done episodes on Hellboy and Hellboy 2, by the way. And I love Ron Perlman so much. The final patron comment comes from Zoe, who says, Blade 2 was great fun. I loved how they took the story in a totally new direction. They could have easily fallen into the trap of giving us the same rehashed story as the first movie. Luckily, the writers were smarter than that. And Zoe, along with his son Zach, they host the Backlook Cinema podcast. It's basically a really cool podcast where a father and son talk about, reminisce about older movies that Zoe can introduce to Zach. And, you know, it's always really cool when us slightly older people can introduce the younger generation to new movies like Blade 2. I will put some information for Backlog Cinema in the show notes. You should absolutely listen to their podcast. We are going to move over to some Twitter thoughts. We're going to start with at dad underscore sleepy, who said, I like this movie a lot. Although they seem to want to push a lot of character stories in amongst the mayhem, but good cast and some good sequences. A good villain used well. I think these Blade movies don't get enough credit for what they brought. At Holmes Movies Pod said, The best of the Wesley Snipes Blade trilogy, an underrated comic book sequel elevated by Guillermo del Toro's direction. A confidently made sequel with some fun and memorable dialogue and characters, plus a creepy and formidable villain played by Luke Goss. The action is great too. At So You Think Pod said, Best Blade Movie. At Hester56 said, It was really good, but I wish we got to see the blood pack actually do something other than look cool and die horribly. Ron Perlman automatically makes anything he's in 27% better. At Harriman Movies said, with the first being loved, the third being hated, which I did mine personally, I think this one is often forgotten about, and it shouldn't. So many great performances, and as always, Del Toro builds an amazing world. 
At Kevin underscore the critic said, Good bloody action. The character development is rushed, but as pure gory action spectacle, it makes a satisfying meal. At Bergsan004 said, It's a solid sequel and not a fun. At Recasted Podcast said, I didn't like it as much as the first one. At Diabolical Pod said, Luke Goss was a revelation, just superb. The vamps were scary, the action was very cool, loved it. At Teddy Hoggled said, Loved this film when I was young, I watched it all the time. To this day, I still say, Welcome Daywalker in blood language, lol. At the set that film said, Blade 2 is a great sequel to one of my favourite comic book movies. Improved visuals, interesting characters, Wesley Snipes on his A-game, and that special Del Toro touch that brings that extra flair to an already great franchise. Well, at least the first two movies. Laughing Smiley. At D.W. Lundberg said, An automatic uptick in quality from Blade 1. Del Toro's style is perfectly suited for this leather-clad comic book world and finds every which way to inject his patented humour into the dialogue and characters. Also, the best performance anyone's gotten out of Snipes, so... At Shoot the Flick said, Another great outing for Wesley Snipes, though it doesn't have the same charm as the first one, but still fun. At Oral underscore MFC, and this is to the tune of my favourite things, so I'm going to do a rendition of it for you now. Autopsies on corpses and strange monster faces A scene in some water on Pilmerny's aces Weird vampires that might give you a sting These are GDT's favourite things Wasn't that lovely? I thought it was. <laughs> At Genuine Chit Chat said My favourite Blade movie and one of my favourite vampire movies, period. So many brilliant moments. At Johnny Literati said, I liked it a lot. At Pearl Mutations is fantastic. And in Norman Readers, Leonore Varela and Donnie Yen, amazing. And it has one of the best soundtracks ever put together. I still have the tracks on my playlist in constant rotation. At Ray Taylor says, Worse than Blade, far better than Blade Trinity. Also added some videos, but this is podcast, so I can't quote videos. <laughs> Sorry about that. No comments over on Instagram, but we do have a comment from Facebook, and that comment is from John, and John simply says, Love it. Which is a great way to end these comments. Thank you so much, everyone, for giving up your time and providing your comments on Blade 2. There aren't many monster makers that can compete with Guillermo del Toro. He's done ghosts, demons, malevolent fawns, and Lovecraftian scenarios. And all of them have been given his distinctive mark. He is more interested in developing something more ancient than what has previously been accomplished. Consider how he approached the vampire originally. Kronos is about a thirst for eternal life rather than a romanticised Dracula-esque monster out for blood. Del Toro would take his designs for Kronos, along with some designs for what would become The Strain, the novel co-authored by Chuck Hogan, released in 2009, which itself was based on the vampiric works of Antoine Augustin Calmet, Montague Summers and Bernhard J. Herwood. Just on a bino, similarities between the plots of Blade II and The Strain are evident, most especially in the design of The Strain's Strigoi. Blade II's virus is spread through feeding and The Strain's through tiny worms which will creep you out. 
Del Toro would state, quote, The design of the vampires from Blade 2 came from the same set of notes I've been keeping since I was a kid. The same notes that went there were the same notes that I used on the strain, so a lot of the biology is in common. The mimic epidemic came from the same place, because I'm very curious about biology and I'm very curious about epidemics and how fast they could undermine society. So that was in the beginning pitch of Mimic, unquote. Blade 2 obviously gave Wesley Snipes a return to the character that he just embodies in a way that no other actor embodies a character. Having him lead a pack of vampires to kill other vampires just makes so much sense. It takes away some of his tragic heroism of the first movie, but it's not really missed because you have so much fun watching this movie, you forget its flaws and just enjoy the manic on-screen energy. But the lasting legacy of Blade 2 is clear when you look at what happened after Blade 2. While Blade 2 on its release in 2002 would be overshadowed, somewhat, shall we say, by Spider-Man's success, it would earn three times its budget in revenue, which enabled the production of other Blade movies, obviously, as well as Del Toro moving on to his Hellboy movie, and then his masterpiece, Pan's Labyrinth. While his early works like Kronos and The Devil's Backbone helped to set the stage for Blade 2, at the time, Blade 2 being by far his biggest success, helped shape Del Toro's cinematic events afterwards. Had Blade 2 flopped, we might never have seen Pat's Labyrinth. He may not have got the Hellboy gig. He would have found his path in Hollywood eventually because he is that talented. But without Blade 2, what would his film history look like? Del Toro shared his kinks with an existing franchise audience by using Blade II as a springboard. He imbued the movie with his love of horror, gore, monsters, the occult, and everything else. Blade II, if anyways, is a gateway drug to the rest of Del Toro's filmography, to a world of sympathetic monsters, the evils of humanity, and the beauty of ugliness. Blade II is unique in many ways, it stands out not only for its strict R rating, its diversity in front and behind the camera and its blending of genres, but also for the film's distinctive aesthetics. Although Blade 2 is fairly scary, it also features fast-paced action and genuine emotion. You can truly empathise with Jared Nomak once you realise that he is Damascus's son and his father has done this to him. Blade 2 is a cross-genre effort that has true weight and impact and it was produced by creators who genuinely believed in the subject material. And while Del Toro was adamant, as I said at the beginning of this episode, that he didn't want to make Guillermo Del Toro's Blade 2, he couldn't help but make Guillermo Del Toro's Blade 2. And that's not to his detriment at all and it's not to the detriment of this movie because without this movie... There is so much beautiful cinema that we probably would have missed out on. And to me, that's why Blade 2 is so special and so important and probably more important than you ever thought it would be. Thank you for listening. As always, I would love to hear your thoughts on Blade 2. If you want to get involved and you want to help this podcast grow, that would be amazing. If you want to have your comments read out in episodes, all you need to do is go on social media usually on a Saturday, comment on the thoughts posts that go up. I am at Verbal Diorama on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook. Leave your comment and I will read it out. But really the most important thing is you can support this podcast 
or any podcast, really, but mostly this one because you're listening to it, you can support it without paying a single penny. All you need to do is you need to tell people about Verbal Diorama. Tell your friends, tell your family about this podcast. You can also, if you are on social media, retweet or like posts. That always helps get visibility out there. And if you really, really enjoy this episode or you've enjoyed other episodes, please consider leaving a rating or review wherever you found this podcast. It really does help. Mostly because it makes me feel good, but it also does help other people who are also using that app. They might click on my podcast, they might click on reviews, and they might see your five-star review and go, ah, maybe I should listen to this podcast too. So don't believe anyone who says it doesn't help. It really does help, and it helps in so many ways. If you liked this episode on Blade 2, you might also like one of the following previous episodes. Now, I do try and give you episodes that I think are related to this movie somewhat. So I'm going to recommend episode 66, Tales from the Crypt, Demon Knight, mostly because I think it's a really fun, really campy movie. But also, it is really fun and really campy. And it's got a brilliant standout performance by Billy Zane, of all people. Really important movie for so many reasons. Blade obviously featured a black superhero. And this was a big deal back in 1998. It's a big deal in 2002. And in many ways, it's still a big deal because representation is really important. But interestingly, Tales from the Crypt Demon Knight not only features a black hero, but a black female hero. And it's a black woman who saves the day. Spoiler alert, but she does. Jada Pinkett Smith is in that movie. She may be most well known nowadays for being the wife of Will Smith and having jokes made about her at the Oscars. But she absolutely slays It Tells from the Crypt Demon Knight. So if you find that movie and if you watch it, please listen to episode 66. Episode 122, Buffy the Vampire Slayer, because of course I did an episode about the Buffy movie and it's about vampires, so kind of counts. Again, super fun, super camp, but brilliant movie. I love that movie so much. Episode 118 is Bram Stoker's Dracula. Now, obviously, completely different in every way, other than the Keanu link, of course. But Bram Stoker's Dracula is a very romanticised version of the vampire legend. So it's really nothing like this at all, but, you know, vampires. And obviously, again, if you haven't listened to episode 154, it is on Blade. And Blade is more important than I think a lot of people realise. And Blade 2 is certainly more important than a lot of people realise. Give me feedback on my recommendations. Did I get it right? Did I miss any? Let me know on social media. So the next episode, Sequel Temba, continues with the daddy of all sequels. Now, I recently did an episode on The Terminator. And The Terminator came back. This time to protect John Connor from an even deadlier Terminator. This is the sequel to end all sequels until more sequels came along. Yes, Terminator 2, Judgment Day, is coming to Verbal Diorama. And I'm so excited to be doing Terminator 2, Judgment Day. Please come back and join me next week because there is no fate but what we make. Now, while you can support this podcast without paying a single penny, there are some amazing people who do financially support this podcast. I am incredibly grateful to them for their support. If you want to join them, you're under no obligation, but feel free 
to visit verbaldiorama.com slash Patreon. And a huge thank you to the amazing patrons of this podcast, Simon E, Sade, Claudia, Simon B, Laurel, Derek, Vern, Kristen, Kat, Andy, Mike, Griff, Luke, Emily, Michael, Scott, Brendan, Ian, Lisa, Sam, Will, Jack, Dave, Chris, Stuart, Sonny, Drew, Nicholas, Zoe, Kev, Pete, Heather and Danny. Pure blood patrons right there. If you want to check out my merch store, it's verbaldiorama.com slash merch. If you want to get in touch with me, it's verbaldiorama at gmail.com. Email me and say hi or fill out the contact form at verbaldiorama.com. I write stuff for film stories. I write podcast recommendations. I write a weekly iPlayer list. And I also write articles here and there as well. You can pop over to filmstories.co.uk and you can also check out the magazine that I write for too and order a copy if you want. And finally, I'm a lover, not a fighter. Bye. Movie